Thanks for joining us for the Minor Tweak Major Impact podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Protocols.io, a collaborative platform and preprint server for science methods, computational workflows, clinical trials, and any procedural checklists and manuals. I am excited to have Dr. Philip Clevis as the guest for today's episode. Philip Clevis is a geneticist applying modern molecular techniques to study coral biology and their response to climate change. Philip got his PhD at the University of California, Berkeley in 2015 and now is studying symbiotic anemones and corals at Stanford University in Dr. John Pringle's lab as a postdoctoral scholar. Philip, I would like to welcome you to the Minor Tweak Major Impact podcast. Thanks for having me on the show. Philip, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and what you're currently working on? I'm a postdoctoral scholar at Stanford, and I'm studying coral biology. A little bit about my background is I went to the University of Arkansas and got a degree in biology. Um, there, even though it was a landlocked state, I got interested in corals um, in particular. And I decided that I would like to ultimately get a PhD in molecular biology and then bring that molecular biology training into the field of coral biology. And after my undergrad at the University of Arkansas, I did a PhD in molecular and cell biology at Berkeley, um, studying stickleback fish and genetics. And now I'm here as postdoc, finally trying to make the dream a reality, which is apply novel molecular biology techniques to coral ecology. You have a method that requires quite a lot of effort, including traveling across the world. Can you please tell us a bit about this method and the story and share your experiences with it? As a graduate student, I became really interested in corals. And so one of the most interesting aspects of coral biology that kind of got me interested in the animals in general is the fact that they have a symbiotic relationship with dinoflagellate algae that live inside of their tissues. So corals are animals. They have the algae that live inside of their gastroderm. When the algae undergo photosynthesis and produce sugar, they basically feed the coral. And that symbiotic relationship was really interesting to me, and it still is very interesting to me, because it basically is the backbone of the coral reef ecosystem. So corals can live in these nutrient-poor waters because they have this photosynthetic organism living inside of their tissue, giving them energy. The reason, another reason why we're really interested in the symbiotic relationship is that not only is it important for corals to survive, but it's actually the loss of that symbiotic relationship is occurring through a process called coral bleaching. And so coral bleaching is a phenomenon where the algae are expelled from the inside of corals when water temperatures get too hot. Because of global warming, water temperatures are increasing all over the world. And when water temperatures get one or two degrees higher than what the corals normally experience in the area, they lose their algal symbionts and they can starve to death and die. And so this is a process that's kind of collapsing major reef ecosystems all over the world for several decades. For instance, in 2016, over the course of about 
two weeks, we lost about 30% of the Great Barrier Reef just from those abnormally high water temperatures. So that's the background interest in the question. And so the real question is, what are the genetic mechanisms that underlie the symbiotic relationship that corals have with this algae? What genes matter for corals to be able to survive increasing water temperatures? Up until recently, we don't didn't have a way to really ask that question because corals are pretty difficult to study in the lab. And we didn't have a really a way to knock out genes to ask what genes do. So our knowledge about the gene function in corals was very limited. And so the method that we applied to corals was trying to generate genetic tools to be able to knock out a gene and then ask what happens to coral biology, either with the symbiosis or tolerance to heat or whatever, because we think that being able to generate these genetic tools that can be applied to many different aspects of coral biology will help us understand the molecular basis for these processes in coral biology in general. And so in order to build genetic tools, we took the approach of trying to apply CRISPR-Cas9 to corals on the Great Barrier Reef. And so what we did is we applied a microinjection technique to corals where we can inject CRISPR-Cas9 components into one cell coral embryos um, to edit the genome at the one cell stage and then grow up the corals to see what their phenotypes are for knocking out a gene. Now, that's pretty easy to do in systems like fish or worms because you have these things growing in the lab regularly. But the thing that made corals, aspect that made corals pretty difficult was the fact that corals only produce egg and sperm once a year by the full moon. And so in the middle of the night in November of 2016, over three days, the corals spawned on the Great Barrier Reef. And so what we did is we flew down from Stanford University to the Australian Institute for Marine Science, and we were there right in the middle of the night when the corals were ready to spawn. And we prepared all of our reagents and everything, and then we're ready once the eggs were produced so that we can micro-inject them with the CRISPR-Cas9 components to induce genome editing. And so it was really kind of in the middle of the night. He had to be there at the right place at the right time to have access to the embryos that would have that, that happens once a year. Um, and so that's what really made the protocol logistically challenging, even though a lot of the methodologies are similar to what you would do in Xenopus or fish or worms. Wow, that sounds like it must have been a lot of work. Were there a lot of people involved in this project? Yeah, that was the part that was kind of special about this particular endeavor to try to genome engineer corals. It took a lot of expertise from many different people coming together in just the right way to make the protocol work. And so um, this was done in a collaboration with Lena Bay, who's at the Australian Institute for Marine Science, and Marie Strayer, who was a graduate student in Misha Metz's lab at University of Texas. And Misha and Lena and Marie are expert coral biologists and know really when the corals are going to spawn, how to handle their larvae, how to do the fertilization. And then I have expertise in the microinjection and CRISPR um, and genome engineering. And so it was the mixture of those expertise together that came to that came together to make the protocol actually work, which, you know, we needed every single one of those components. 
that was the first event, which was in 2016. Now we go back every year to the Australian Institute for Marine Science and Alina Bay and I keep working on trying to adapt the protocol to be more efficient or to be able to knock out genes to ask what, what happens in, in certain aspects of coral biology. When you only really get one experiment per year, you want to make sure that this experiment is worth all the effort and you learn something new from it. What are some preparations and things you do strategically to build a technique when you only have a few shots at it at all? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. So the very first time we tried to CRISPR corals, we found that it worked actually the first time we did it, which was lucky because we only had one shot to do it in that particular year. But we also want to make improvements and tweaks to the protocol to make it more efficient or be able to do different types of genome engineering. And so that's a real interesting strategic question about how to build a protocol when you only can test it once a year. And so what we, what I've been doing is basically changing very small things each year and seeing if it works, but don't rely on those changes for main experiments. So I try to do one experiment with the previous year's method and then in addition, test a bunch of other small things to see if they improve or make the method worse. And it, it's really interesting. Another technique that we try to do in order to make sure that the changes in the methodology will work is that we try them here in other systems. And so we have another anemone here that we've been working on for genome engineering called Aptasia. That's a, also a cnidarian like corals. And so we can test out some of the methods here at Stanford that where these anemones spawn regularly here in the lab and then know that method works in Aptasia. And so that's going to increase the likelihood that it will work in corals. And so we test the things we can here, but then make very small changes out in the field. Besides traveling across the world for an experiment and all the stress of preparing this one shot per year, what are some other painstaking methods you've experimented in your scientific career? I think that science is wonderful in the uncharted territory, but sometimes it can be pretty labor intensive. And so one of the experiments that came to mind when, when I was in grad school, we were studying fish tooth number evolution and stickleback in order to phenotype large genetic crosses to study genes that control tooth number evolution in stickleback fish, we had to dissect and count the pharyngeal teeth or the throat teeth of hundreds and sometimes thousands of stickleback fish. That was pretty labor intensive to dissect and count the teeth of all these fish. So I think that that was pretty labor intensive. And although I had help from several awesome undergraduates in the lab. Do you have any tips or suggestions for other scientists who are working with methods that involve a lot of painstaking work? I think that experiments have different associated risk levels. And so I think that doing genome editing in corals, you know, where experiment where you can only do it once a year by the full moon in the, <laughs> in the middle of the night, I think that there's a, quite a bit of risk associated with an experiment like that. The way that I usually think about how much risk to take as a postdoc or as a graduate student is to kind of diversify my portfolio. So I have some experiments that are low risk that I know will likely to work. And then I also take on some experiments that are higher risk. And so if you have a good mixture of low risk and high risk experiments, then you can actually be sure that you have something concrete at the end, even if the high risk stuff doesn't end up working. 
And our last question is, do you have any favorite lab tool? And if you do, why is it your favorite tool? I think that my favorite lab tool is probably the micro-injection rib rig. And so this is the injection rig that we use to poke embryos, corals, or fish to genetically engineer them. And this is a pretty cool one because, and I've become very close to it because we take one to Australia every year. And so I, I check it in the airplane and I worry about it the entire flight to Australia, make sure it doesn't get dinged up or messed up because it really is the workhorse of the tech engineering work that we do in corals. So that's probably my favorite. Philip, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your story on the Minor Tweak Major Impact podcast. Thank you. This is your host, Anita, and we look forward to being with you for our next episode. <laughs>